the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today, we debunk silly complaints about the Israeli-Palestinian peace deal, smack down a couple talking points on impeachment, and look at what Christian conversion experiences can tell us about the nature of faith. Welcome to the 180 Cast. Hello and welcome back to the 180 Cast. I am your host, Georgie Borman, and this is the podcast dedicated to exploring how people change their minds, as well as bring clarity out of all of this political and cultural confusion, and that is exactly what we plan on doing today. Before we get started, if you are already a fan of the podcast, please do not forget to hit subscribe so that you will be notified when I'm posting new episodes every Friday and every other Tuesday. Every other Friday, by the way, is an in-depth interview with somebody who has made a radical shift in opinion or worldview. They are very interesting. They are thorough, and uh, I quite enjoy recording them for you, and I think that you will enjoy them as well. So keep an eye out for those. As I said in the teaser, we are going to set a couple things straight as far as the impeachment narratives are concerned, and we are going to talk about some of the inappropriate uh, complaints that are being put forward regarding the uh, brand new deal announced by President Trump um, regarding the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and we are going to get to uh, highlights from the last interview I did with Dr. Paul Lim, who is uh, an accomplished author and Christian writer and speaker, and uh, talk about his conversion experience coming from a, a purely secular household into the Christian faith. We're going to start with the Middle East. Let's go ahead and get into the top stories. I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I don't know what we're yelling about. It will top the list. So earlier this week, President Trump, along with uh, Bibi Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, announced a, uh, a sort of peace deal regarding the Israeli-Palestinian situation. It is a two-state solution, and there are sort of maps and stuff that you can look at that show you, according to the plan, how the territories and the disputed territories are going to be divided up. The plan does favor Israel. That's something that pretty much everybody has gotten right. Uh, it's it's very easy to see that the, the plan favors Israel over the Palestinian people. Um, there are there are a couple couple talking points uh, that I've seen some journalists put forward that I think are misleading and also quite sneaky in the way that they're being expressed. For instance, when I was uh, scrolling through the the breaking news reactions that these journalists put on Twitter, one thing that came up over and over and over again as part of their bullet points was 
there weren't any Palestinian leaders up on the podium with President Trump and Netanyahu when Trump announced this peace plan. Well, there's a good reason for that, and it's not a reason that people are immediately putting forward. That reason is because the leaders of the Palestinian people wanted nothing to do with negotiations, wanted nothing to do with a peace plan in general, period, end of story, okay? Mahmoud Abbas, the, the, the leader of the um, Palestinian Liberation Organization, said a thousand no's to the peace plan, to the quote-unquote deal of the century. He doesn't want this at all. And uh, as soon as this was announced, you can tell the, the response from the Palestinian side is riots. It's burning uh, American flags, burning Israeli flags, burning pictures of Trump and Netanyahu, and uh, general discontent over this idea of actually having a two-state solution, which is something that is the conventional wisdom that virtually everybody thinks is the answer is as long as you just if you can just divide up the territory to where both sides are happy then you're going to have a two-state solution and you're going to have peace well that's not really how this works and if you look at the history of the israeli-palestinian conflict there's a lot more to it than oh look israel is occupying these territories and they're uh you know encroaching on the historic palestinian territory or something like that that's that's just, that's not what's happening when you look at the actual conflict. I, I want to play a soundbite for you that I think illustrates exactly what is going on and why there isn't any peace. I have a clip here of uh, Rocket Fire. This is from 2012, but you can find the same things from 10 months ago, from two months ago, of rockets being fired into Israel from terrorist organizations, from Hamas. While we were filming, the sirens began again. But, uh, siren, we've got to get to I hear the explosions. Go inside, go inside, go inside. This is where Israeli the students school. would be hiding where uh, of course, children would be if they'd been in school. Luckily, they weren't. Had they been, uh, there would have undoubtedly been casualties. And uh, we just heard the explosion. We don't know. There's one close by. Okay, one's come down very close by the sound of it. This is why there can't be peace. It's not because President Trump and Netanyahu didn't reach out to the other side and say, well, what do you want out of this deal? And let's make a compromise and we'll come together and finally there'll be peace. As if Israel has been obstinate this whole time and desiring to stay in, in conflict with the, the people that border them. As if that's the case. That's not the case at all. Rockets are indiscriminately fired into civilian areas near hospitals, near schools. This is terrorism that, that the people of Israel face on a regular basis. This happens all the time. And not just rockets. If, if you go back and look at the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the actual incidents of violence that happened, there were years of bombings, suicide bombings, where children died, women died, Civilians in general died. Buses blown up. They're in schools um, outside of outside of synagogues. It, it went on for years before Israel even really 
did anything major in terms of pushing back the militant groups on their borders that are threatening their very existence. Do you want to know why they can't have peace? It's because the Palestinian leadership doesn't want peace. And the Palestinian people have been indoctrinated for decades into believing that if they just hold out long enough, that Israel will be destroyed and they can have that entire territory and that the Jewish people will face another diaspora and they'll just go away and be pushed out of the area. That's why this peace deal isn't actually going to work. That said, it gives a a four-year window for Palestinian leadership to come to the table and say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll take that deal. There have been other deals in the past that were better than this. People are complaining that the deal favors Israel. Of course it favors Israel. And it favors Israel, especially regarding the, the quote-unquote occupied areas where the, the Jewish people, not only is, is that territory disputed and um, some of those territories won in defensive wars as Israel was protecting itself and was able to expand its borders, not because they started a war, but because people around them started a war, uh, but also because they have a historic ties to those areas. Judea and Samaria are historically Jewish lands, okay? Palestinian people don't want peace. According to a senior Hamas official, he said, we are certain that our Palestinian people will not let these conspiracies pass. So all options are open. He's talking about responses. The Israeli occupation and the U.S. administration will bear the responsibility for what they did. He was, of course, participating in one of several protests that broke out across the Hamas-ruled Gaza Strip, according to the Japan Japan Times. This is why you can't have peace. You don't get to complain about not having the deal that you want when you reject every single deal that's put in front of you, historically. There have been ceasefires. There have been peace accords. They haven't worked out. They've consistently been violated, not by Israel, but by the Palestinians, or by the, the, the terrorist groups that hold authority over those regions. You don't get to complain about there not being representatives from the Palestinian people up there when they're not going to take that peace deal anyway. You don't get to complain about the deal favoring Israel when you've rejected much better deals that gave you much more land and were much more accommodating when you've rejected those in the past. You don't get to complain about that. Okay? Okay. Now, let's move on to talk about a couple things impeachment-related. I said before that these are talking points. They're more like just straight-up misinformation. The first is coming from Adam Schiff. Listen to what he had to say uh, just a a couple days ago during the impeachment um, question-and-answer session. Now, bear in mind that efforts to cheat an election are always going to be in proximity to an election. And if you say you can't hold a president accountable in an election year where they're trying to cheat in that election, then you are giving them carte blanche. This is not the first time that Adam Schiff has talked about, quote unquote, cheating in the election. This is his go-to talking point, that Donald Trump was trying to, quote unquote, cheat in the election when he was soliciting investigations into Hunter Biden and Burisma and uh, soliciting investigations into Ukraine's possible role in election in interference in U.S. elections. This is not cheating, okay? People are using this as like a shorthand for what happened, but cheating means something entirely 
entirely different, okay? Opposition research is common to every major electoral campaign across the world, okay? You are always trying to dig up dirt on your opponent. That's just the way it is. And soliciting information from foreign powers, believe it or not, is not illegal. It's not illegal. If you're soliciting information in order to commit an illegal act, that's different. But just getting information from foreign authorities is not illegal. You may consider it, quote unquote, interference in a very subjective sense, but it is not cheating. Cheating is rigging voting machines. It's hiding ballots. It's intimidating voters. It's, you know, blackmailing donors. Um, Anything that's like trying to tamper with the actual end results of the votes, that is cheating. Cheating is not opposition research. If opposition research is cheating, then every single politician who has ever run for elected office at anything higher than very local uh, you know, elections, anything that's partisan, they're all cheaters by that standard. You need to be careful about the standards you're using and the language that you're using because, you know what, it's just going to be thrown right back at you. It's not cheating. Point number two, people are talking about what, uh, there's this soundbite that's circulating from Alan Dershowitz, who's uh, Trump's uh, attorney defending him in the impeachment uh, trial. And they're saying, oh my goodness, Alan Dershowitz, he's, uh, he's, he's promoting an idea of, a, of a, like a constitutional monarchy, like an, an elected di- dictatorship. And th- this is the, the soundbite in question, if, in case you haven't heard it or don't remember. Every public official that I know believes that his election is in the public interest. And mostly you're right. Your election is in the public interest. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. The beginning of of what he said, that's part of what he said, okay? But context matters a lot. So listen what he continues to say after that point. The, the media and the left in general is, is trying to, to spin this as... Um, as he's promoting the the idea that you can't ever impeach a president for anything as long as the president claims he is acting in the national interest. That's the way that this is being taken. That's the way that that soundbite is being interpreted. And if that's all Alan Dershowitz said, that would be, that could be a fair representation. But there's no context to what he's saying. And even with longer soundbites, you can still be taken wildly out of context and be be portrayed as saying something that you're absolutely not saying. So they're saying that as long as the president says it's in the national interest, he can do whatever he wants. But listen to listen to what he continues to say after that. Every president believes that. That's why it's so dangerous to try to psychoanalyze a president, to try to get into the in- intricacies of the human mind. Everybody has mixed motives. And for there to be a constitutional impeachment based on mixed motives would permit almost any president to be impeached. How many presidents have made foreign policy decisions after checking with their political advisors and their pollsters? If you're just acting in the national interest, what do you need pollsters? What do you need political advisors? Just do what's best for the country. 
But if you want to balance what's in the public interest with what's in your party's electoral interest and your own electoral interest, it's impossible to discern how much weight is given to one to the other. Now, okay, so what he's saying is that it's a mixed bag of motives. He's talking, he's not just saying that as long as it's in the national interest, you can do whatever you want. He's saying that it's a mixed bag of motives, and that's exactly what I've said on this podcast before. The Democrats are insisting that they basically can read Donald Trump's mind and read into it this this idea that his motivations are almost purely, it, it may be masqueraded as in the, in, as being in the national interest, maybe masked that way, but underneath his motives are, are purely for personal gain. Mixed bag, as I've said on this podcast before, you cannot read people's minds. You have to look first and foremost. It's not, it's not an issue of strict liability per se, but you have to look first and foremost uh, on the outside and what is being done and what would a reasonable person um, think of this. Is it in the national interest to find out if somebody is interfering in U.S. elections? Yes. Is it in the national interest to know if a major candidate for president has a son who's getting kickbacks from a uh, oil and natural gas company? Yes, actually, that is in the public interest. The public deserves to be well informed on the candidates that they're potentially voting into the highest office in the land. And anyway, he continues after this, and this part's important as well. And it cannot be a corrupt motive if you have a mixed motive that partially involves the national interest, partially involves electoral, and does not involve personal pecuniary interests. And the House managers do not allege that this decision, this quid pro quo, as they call it, and the question is based on the hypothesis there was a quid pro quo, I'm not acting the facts, they never allege that it was based on pure financial reasons. In other words, he's not saying that we have a democratically elected dictatorship and you can do whatever you want. He's saying that, especially since this is, not, he's saying that this is not grounds for impeachment, especially since every president believes his own election is in the national interest. In other words, you can't classify electoral interest as personal interest. It's not the same thing. A personal interest, like a financial in interest, as if he was saying, and I think he uh, he gave this example when he was talking about this, was if President Trump said to the president of Ukraine, hey, um, I'm going to withhold your aid until you allow me to build some hotels super cheap in Ukraine. That would be a personal interest, and that would be completely and utterly corrupt. But that's not what's happened. Electoral interest is different than your personal interest, your personal gain. Just because you're doing something in, in, in the, uh, with your election in mind, that can't possibly a dis be, it can't possibly be a disqualifying factor that would allow you to be impeached because virtually anybody could be impeached for anything as long as you can show or reasonably expect that something is being done because it's going to win them votes. It's going to be popular with the voters. You can't, disc you can't impeach somebody for doing things that are in their own electoral interest because virtually everything a president does, virtually everything a an elected official does is in their own electoral interest. Whether or not you consider that as part of the national interest, 
an electoral interest is different from a personal interest. And that's really the key here that's missing and, and really the key to understanding what Alan Dershowitz is, is saying. If you have a suspicion that a soundbite is being taken out of context, odds are it probably is. And you need to go back and you need to look around that soundbite to see what's actually going on. And that's what I had to do. When I first heard that soundbite, I was blown away. I was like, Oh my gosh, he's saying that we have an elector, uh, because basically an elected dictatorship and a president can do whatever he wants because you can't prove that he didn't believe it's in the national interest. But of course, my opinion changed because I did my research. So there you go. Coming up, we're going to talk about episode highlights or what I took away from episode 46, which was uh, an interview with an atheist who became a Christian. Did a full one we actually did a few one big change. Left. The light bulb That's went where on. it crystallized for God me. God just opened my eyes. It changed my I mind. changed my mind completely. Okay, so as I said, the last interview I did was with Paul Lim, who is a speaker and uh, author and uh, historian of Christianity, particularly focusing on the Reformation. Um, the whole conversation was really, really interesting. We talked a lot about theodicy, which is the the question of how a good God can permit evil and suffering in the world. So if that's something that interests you, I think it's a good, really good uh, place to, to start as far as that is concerned. So Paul became a Christian while he was a student at Yale. Basically, in a nutshell, to, to make his mom happy, because his mom wanted to make his sister happy, who was marrying a pastor. He went basically to this sort of young person's conference, this Christian conference, even though he said he doesn't have a religious, he didn't have a religious bone in his body. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll just go to make my family happy. And that's where he uh, had his initial conversion experience. Listen to what he had to say. It was while listening to the praise team play a song, uh, by a former golden oldie Christian singer named Keith Green um, called To Obey Zerd and Sacrifice. I don't need your money, I want your life. And just, you know, merely a week or two ago, I told my sister that I will help your ministry even though I don't believe in anything about Jesus Christ, but because you're my dear, dear sibling, I'll do everything I can to help you with my money. Now, it's a perfect confluence of coincidence or providence that the words of the song, which I, under any other circumstance, would have found it absolutely irrelevant, if not boring. It was almost as if I was hearing it as a uh, sort of a divine speech. I don't need your money. I want your life. So one of the first things I picked up on when going back and listening to the episode was, gosh, your worship sets actually matter. I feel like if you're a a uh, worship team leader or you're on the worship team at church or you're just a, a congregant who's worshiping every Sunday, you you kind of get into a, a mundaneness of the songs and the songs are repeated sort of over and over again and you kind of get stuck in a rut and you may lose touch with the impact that songs can actually have on the people who are listening to them and the people who are worshiping and especially you know the people who just show up and sit in the back like paul did and you're thinking maybe worship 
you know, worship songs are for people who are worshiping, but also you got to keep in mind that those other people are in the back. It's not that you're catering to them, but what does matter is that you're singing songs that proclaim God's truth, that worship God for who he is and aren't sort of this touchy-feely, lovey-dovey, very man-centric set of lyrics that we we so often see today and which I have taken issue with multiple times. God's love isn't reckless. Just a reminder. (laughs) I wrote an article about that. God's love is not reckless, okay? It's not reckless love. But in any case, Keith Green, okay? A Keith Green song. I don't need your money. I want your life. To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money, I want your life. And I hear you say that I'm coming back soon. But you act like I'll never return. It's a pretty good song. And it's very honest about giving to God and God doesn't just want your money. He doesn't need your money. He wants your life. He wants your devotion. He wants you to belong to him and be in covenant relationship with him. And that's a profound truth. And obviously, it it really hit home with with Paul, especially considering the the context was, you know, he wanted to to give money to his his sister and her husband and um, not because he was religious, but be- because he, that must be the right thing to do. He continues and explains exactly how this song impacted him. And I remember sitting in the back of the uh, sanctuary, or not sanctuary, the gym or whatever it's called, and um, just I started weeping. And I don't know, it was one of those uncontrollable, impossible to hold back kind of response. Who, unless you're already a Christian, starts weeping uncontrollably at a Keith Green song. I mean, it's it's Keith Green. These are these are oldies. These are like piano tunes that are sound a little bit hokey to our our modern ear, but you know, some of them are some of them are pretty good. I I remember hearing them a lot as a kid. Um who starts weeping uncontrollably at a Keith Green song who's not already a Christian? And I think the answer is somebody whose heart has just been radically changed. Remember, he didn't have a religious bone in his body. I was going to be initiated into this new relationship with God, something I never wanted, something I didn't really think would be desirable or possible. Something he never wanted. He didn't go to that conference expecting to encounter God. He didn't go to that conference looking for God or even just looking for something more or looking for some sort of spiritual experience as so many people go to concerts and 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 things like that looking for he wasn't seeking god and yet god found him and met him where he was at through a song that spoke almost directly to his personal experiences that, that he was going through at the time i don't want your money i don't i don't need you to give to your sister and and her pastor husband I want you. I want your life. God is the one who changes hearts. A lot of the time we we talk about, Christians talk about conversion as, 
you're accepting Jesus into your heart. You're inviting him into your heart. And you have this God-shaped hole in your soul. And you're, you're constantly yearning and desiring for, for God to fill that. And, and a little bit of that is, is true, right? We're, we're human beings. We're designed to be in a relationship with our creator. And there is some of that lingering yearning that exists. But at the same time, we're rebel sinners. And the Bible talks about that e- extensively. We're not, we're not actually seeking God. We're seeking to stuff that hole with all of this other stuff, with money, with other, you know, with um, romantic relationships, with drugs, with prestige, with your career, with stuff. But it's God who changes hearts. It says in Ezekiel, who was a, a prophet sent by God to speak to the people of Israel when they had gone astray and sought after false idols and and really just done a lot of things that were uh, abhorrent in God's sight. It says in uh, chapter 36, 26, Moreover, this is God speaking through is uh, through Ezekiel. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He takes out of our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. God does that. We don't just grab that off the shelf. God does that. And I think that Paul's experience is illustrative of that. Not everybody comes to the faith through being argued into it, being reasoned into it. As as sort of intellectually geared as I am, and as much as I love apologetics and things like that, like God uses that absolutely 100%. God uses all of that stuff to bring people into his kingdom and to bring people into relationship with him. But it's not purely an intellectual exercise, <laughs> of course, to become a Christian. You need your heart changed. And it says in Jeremiah 24, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. It starts with the heart. Ultimately, when you become a Christian, when you become indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that's not just a mental a, a tip of the hat to the gospel. That's God doing a radical work in you to give you a heart of flesh and to free you from your sin nature. And then it says in Jeremiah also, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Even the intellectual pursuits that Paul continued on as soon as he had that experience, he started taking uh, you know, religious courses while he was at Yale. He was seeking answers. That, that all started first with a change in his heart because that's how God works. You will find God when you seek him, not just with your mind, right? Not just reading a bunch of books, but when you seek him with your whole heart. And whatever I do with my brain, ultimately, hopefully I use that to glorify him. But wherever my brain goes, it's the heart that leads it. So study, studying Christianity, studying theodicy, studying, you know, um, how the, the biblical canon was put together, studying the Bible particularly, that is how you grow in wisdom and strengthen your faith in the invisible God. It's how you defend the faith. It is used by God to glorify him and reach souls for Christ. 
but in itself it is not what creates your faith. I'm so glad that I got to have this conversation with Paul and be reminded of the fact that it's not within my own strength that I continue in this faith. It's it's God who is carrying me. It's he who gave me a heart of flesh and took out the heart of stone. When I come back on Tuesday, we're going to talk culture, some wokeness, and I want to talk about how the pro-life movement intersects with election politics and debunk some conventional wisdom in that regard. Friday, I'll be posting an interview with a disability rights advocate, which was very interesting. It was a really good sort of back and forth. He's from a very different ideological uh, background than me. Um, And uh, we're going to talk about his flip on assisted suicide. Please subscribe to the podcast. If you enjoyed this, share it. And please do not hesitate to reach out with your questions or comments by calling the flip phone at 323-999-1802 where you can flip out or not flip out. Glowing praise is also accepted. You can try to flip my position or you can tell me about your own 180 story or send me tips on other 180 stories because I am always looking for interesting people to interview who have a compelling story on how they changed their mind. 323-999-1802 and you can follow the podcast on Twitter, mostly Twitter and sometimes Instagram <laughs> at 180cast. If you do like the 180 cast, go ahead and go to Apple Podcasts and give it a quick review and a rating. That would be so, so helpful for this podcast. You can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman, where I continue to opine on current events from politics to pop culture to faith. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Oh, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to in the middle of a struggle. Oh, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to in the middle of Executive producer Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Craft. What I need, who I've got in the middle of a struggle. Oh, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.